bulletin is the call to worship. It comes from Psalm 40. Psalm 40, it is a psalm in which we are reminded of our need to trust in God, to be obedient to His Word. He desires our obedience more than our sacrifices. And then we make a confession at the very end. I delight to do Your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And may that truly be the confession of the people of God in this place this morning. Will you stand with me and let us call one another to worship. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud nor to those who lapse into falsehood. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. What a wonderful God we've gathered to worship this morning. He is the God who created this world and everything in it. Therefore, we confess this is my Father's world. Hymn 109 in your Trinity hymn books. 109, this is my Father's world and to my listening ears.
pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for this wonderful reminder in the hymn how you are sovereign over all things. You have brought us here today. You have made this a day of worship. Jesus, has, who died, will be satisfied. And we ask for that grace to be bestowed upon us. We ask that the Spirit, that you would send the Spirit to come and walk among us and draw each and every one of us in this place onto you this day. And that our singing and reading and praying would all be done with the eye and the view of honoring and glorifying you, O Heavenly Father. In your Son's name we ask, amen. Amen. Not only is the God that we gather to worship the one who created the world and rules over the world, but he is also our guide, our shepherd as we live in this world. Trinity, page 505, all the way, my Savior leads me. What have I to ask beside? Number 505 in your Trinity hymn book. Consecutive reading today, we will be reading uh, John chapter 10. It's one of the most well-known passages, probably, at least in my opinion, I guess, in the scripture. It's the I am the good shepherd passage, and what a comfort there is in 
what the Lord Jesus Christ has to say to us in that. In our reading this morning, in the second stanza that we read after pastor's opening, it said, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done and your thoughts towards us. There is none to compare to you. And that, when you consider John 10, 14 through 18, it's just beyond comprehension, his thoughts towards us. And um, there are two um, I am sayings in this passage. John has been going through a series of them in the previous chapters. I am the light of the world, and um, Christ uh, announces himself as the living bread, and there's... I look back and there's just a series of them, and today we come upon two more I am passages declaring his uh, divinity, his Godhead, and uh, they are the door and the good shepherd. I am the door and the good shepherd. And that teaches us that it is in him and him alone that we must enter um, the kingdom of heaven. You could equate I am the door with the narrow gate, and that gate is the work and um, testimony of Jesus Christ, and only him. And then the good shepherd portion is his care for us, that he will see us through to the end. All right, let's read. John chapter 10. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that entereth not by the door into the sheepfold, but climbeth up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he that entereth in by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the porter openeth, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calleth his own sheep by name, and leadeth them out. And when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, And the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. This parable spoke Jesus unto them, but they understood not what things they were which he spoke to them. Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh, but not for, excuse me, the thief cometh not, but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, seeth the wolf coming, and leaveth the sheep, and fleeth. And the wolf catcheth them, and scatters the sheep. The hireling fleeth, because he is a hireling, and careth not, for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and am and know my sheep and am known of mine. We certainly see the divine sovereignty 
of our Savior um, tending to his flock here. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Our day and age, we like to divide people out by every form imaginable to divide and conquer, but the Lord gathers and unifies. If you, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ are of one fold and there is one shepherd. Be careful of any teaching that tries to divide out who the people of God are. And this uh, includes genetic line, racial line, uh, um, where you're at on the income scale. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we belong to one um, fold, and we have one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There was a division, therefore, uh, again, among the Jews for these sayings, and many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of a blind man? Excuse me, it's of the blind. Too much study going into this, and I got all kinds of thoughts going through my head. But it said, Can a devil cast open, can a devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews round about him and spoke unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Amazing statement there. So all he's done is told them and showed them. But we'll move on. Jesus answered them, I told you and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not because you are not of my sheep as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works. Have I showed you from my Father, for which of these works do you stone me? The Jews answered, saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou, being a man, maketh thyself God. Jesus answered them, it is, is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? And if he called them gods, unto whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, Say ye of him whom the Father has sanctified and sent into the world, thou blasphemest, because I said, I am the Son of God. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though you believe not me, believe the works, 
that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hand and went again, went away again beyond Jordan into the place where John at first baptized, and there he abode. And many resorted unto him and said, John did no miracle, but all the things that John spoke of this man were true, and many believed on him there. Well, as we go to prayer this morning, we especially want to remember the compeers, Tom and Beverly, uh, who have labored in the Far East, but came home for a wedding, uh, I think it was before COVID, and have been unable to return since. And so we're praying that they might be able to return to the country where they have labored for a while, seeking demon-trained men for the ministry. So we want to remember them in prayer. It was a delight last Lord's Day afternoon to have Pastor Bala with us, even though it could be discouraging that he said he was, I think, 70 or close to 70, and yet that man just keeps going and going and going. And uh, I'm not sure where he is this weekend. I know by the end of the week he'll be in New Jersey. I know on Wednesday he was in Canada. Uh, So where exactly he is today, I don't know, but I can pretty much guarantee you that wherever he's at, he's sharing the work that God's called him to do. So we want to continue to pray for our brother as he labors for the advancement of the gospel. Well, let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, our hearts are filled with thanksgiving (coughs) as we think of your willingness to come into this world and not only to take on the form of a servant, but to be willing to die, to lay down your own life. No man took it from you. You gave it of your own initiative. And you died for sinners. It was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. That's amazing love. That's beyond, many times, our our comprehension. But, Father, how thankful we are that you were willing to give your Son, that through him we can know forgiveness of sin. And through him we can be reconciled to you. And, And even have a desire this morning to gather with your people to worship you. And so we would ask that as we gather together, that in everything that we do, it would be with a focus upon you, and of your mercy, and of your grace, and of your love, and of your faithfulness. And so, Father, we pray that in our singing, it is to the end that your name would be glorified. In our hearing your word, may it be to the end that we would be obedient children of God. In our praying, may it be a recognition of our dependence upon you for all things. Even to worship you as you ought to be worshipped, we acknowledge that we need your help. In our giving, Father, help us to give even to the end that your kingdom may be advanced. And so, Father, we pray as we commit this time to you that you will come and and meet with us. 
Father, as we think of the work going on around the world, how we give you thanks for the compeers and men like Pastor Bala. Father, we pray for Tom and Beverly that as they seek to enter into the country that they've been laboring in for so long that you might be with those officials to grant them that permission. We pray, Father, that Tom might continue to have the opportunity to instruct and train men in the gospel ministry, that they might, Father, be men that will go out and shepherd your people. Father, we pray for the literature ministry, that you would bless that to the end, that, that it might be a benefit, especially to the people of God, who suffer, no doubt, persecution because of their stand for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for Pastor Bala and just the determination that that man has of seeking to advance your kingdom, especially among Tamil-speaking people. Thank you for the opportunity that he has to mentor men around the world. And we pray that even as he anticipates being able to go to India in the near future, that you might bless and open those doors for him. And yet, Father, he still shepherds and pastors the people of Sovereign Grace Church there in Auckland, New Zealand. And so we pray that you'll continue to give our brother good health and good strength, that he might continue to labor for the advancement of your kingdom. Father, we pray this day as we hear news of the chaos and the upheaval and the wars that are going on. Father, we're thankful that we can have peace in the midst of all this because you're the God who rules and reigns over all things. But we would pray that where wickedness seems to prevail, that you would put it down. Father, where men pursue to do evil activities, that you will bring an end to those things. Be with leaders of countries who need wisdom and how to best maneuver through all that is taking place in their land. Father, may this be a means that you will use to cause men to rise up and say, we need God. That, Father, we would be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within us. So, Father, we do pray that you will draw near as your word is opened. Help us to have hearts ready to receive that word as we ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. Now, before we come to open the word of God, take your hymns of grace, turning to 128. I don't believe we sung this before, but I believe it's a familiar tune. Onward march, all conquering Jesus. 128 in the hymns of grace.
Second Timothy chapter one. Second Timothy chapter one. Me reading, you're hearing the first six verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a clear conscience, the way my forefathers did, as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you <coughs> even as I recall your tears, so that I may be filled with joy. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of hands. For God has not given you a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love, and of discipline. We'll stop our reading there. When the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to Timothy, as you read some of the commentaries, they say he's an old man. And yet, as I did some further looking into this, it says that he believed, he, most believe, he was about 65 plus years old. So I find a discrepancy among the commentators. One who say he's an old man, but the other one says he was probably about 65 years old. I don't think the two of them necessarily go together. Though perhaps at one time I did, I certainly don't feel that way any longer. Paul himself refers to himself in Philemon as Paul the Aged. He has written Timothy some years before he wrote this letter. He had also written Titus. And this letter will now be the last letter that he writes. Paul is pretty much at the end of his days, and he apparently is aware of that. His life has been marked out by persecution, troubles, and hardships, especially ever since that event that took place on the road to Damascus. He's experienced beatings and stonings and shipwrecks and imprisonments. You will find at the end of this letter that he says these words, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure is at hand. Paul's writing this letter from prison. In verse 8 here, he describes himself as a prisoner. 
He was probably in a prison that was very hard to get to for, for one of his companions even mentioned the fact that he has a hard time finding him. Verse 17, he eagerly searched for me and found me. He was in chains, according to verse 16. There in verse 12, we read that he suffered. In chapter 4, we're given the idea that he experienced loneliness. And he's now waiting for his full trial to take place. But what is interesting is, is that as we read this letter from prison, we do not find the Apostle Paul describing himself with words of self-pity, with words of discouragement. In fact, he is writing this letter as an older man to his younger beloved son in the Lord. Notice how he addresses Timothy there in verse 2. To Timothy, my beloved son. Pastor MacArthur says this. His final words to Timothy includes few commendations, but many admonitions, including some 25 imperatives of command. Nine of these imperatives are in chapter 4, by far the more personal section of the epistle. Paul wanted Timothy to understand that these verses were not mere suggestions from a loving friend or advisor, but were divinely inspired commands from the apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul the aged is writing young Timothy, and no doubt young Timothy probably treasured the counsel, the advice, and even the commands that would come to him from the Apostle Paul. It's a wonderful thing to be a younger minister and to have a wise counselor giving you counsel with regard to your service for the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe it's probably something that Timothy very much prized. And there's one piece of counsel that the Apostle Paul gives to Timothy that I want us to focus our attention on this morning. So if you thought, because I read First Tim 2 Timothy 1, 1 through 6, this was going to be a new series, it's not. I want us to focus upon simply one piece of counsel given to Timothy by the Apostle Paul. And it's given to us in verse 7. Paul says to Timothy, 
For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and of discipline. There in verse 6, the Apostle Paul reminded Timothy of his need to keep the fire alive, to, to flame the embers, to, to fan the embers into flame so that they would not die out. And certainly each believer should begin each day by denying self and by flaming the embers of whatever gifts God's given to us to be used for Him. Under the Spirit's direction and aid, we must daily exercise the gifts God's given to us so they don't deteriorate from neglect or apathy. Paul then admonishes Timothy, that he was not to be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of himself by recognizing God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but one of power and love and of sound mind. And so as, as we open up this word of counsel, there in verse 7, we shall do so under two very simple headings. I think most of you could come up with the headings if I gave you the opportunity. The first one is this, the gift not given. And then secondly, the gifts given. All right? You want to write that down and keep that in mind? That sounds pretty deep theological stuff there. So first of all, notice with me, the gift not given. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity. Now there's a couple things we need to just address as we come to this prohibition given by the Apostle Paul. What does he mean by spirit? I would imagine that most of us, the New American Standard, or if you have the English version, or if you have the King James, the word spirit is little s, not capital S. So is the Apostle Paul saying, God has not given you an inward disposition of fear? Or is Paul saying, God has not given you the Spirit, capital S, which leads to fear. And like I said, most of our Bibles translates it with the little s. However, I've become more convinced that the Apostle Paul has in mind here the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a spirit of fear. The reason, one of the reasons I've come to that conclusion is because of a parallel passage in Romans chapter 8. You can turn there, keep your fingers there in Timothy if you want. But Romans chapter 8 seems to be a parallel text to what we read here in 2 Timothy. 
Romans 8 and verse 15. We read, You have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. The Holy Spirit is not a spirit of fear, but the Holy Spirit of adoption, who brings us to cry out, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit, Paul sees as the gift of the resurrected Christ given to every believer. And that Spirit working within us causes us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. There's a nearness to God that we have as we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God. The Spirit is given, capital S, the Spirit is given to every believer at the moment of conversion. He is that helper that has been promised to the people of God, to the disciples of Christ, by Christ himself. When I leave, I will give you a comforter, a helper, and that being the Holy Spirit. Christ is able to say, I will never leave you or forsake you. How does that come about? By the indwelling of his Spirit. Romans 8 and verse 9 says, Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And what the Apostle Paul is now saying to Timothy is this, that the, the very Spirit which God has promised you is not the Spirit of timidity or fear or cowardice. Now, I do have good company. You know, I, I prefer always to have a few other guys standing up here with me. And I do. Besides Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. William Hendrickson says this. The gist of Paul's argument then would seem to be as follows. My dear child, Timothy, fight that tendency of yours toward fearfulness. The Holy Spirit given to you and me and every believer is not the spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. Avail yourself to that limitless, never-failing power and you will proclaim God's truth of that intelligent, purposeful love, and you will comfort God's children, even to the extent of visiting me in my 
Roman prison and to that ever necessary self-discipline and self-control. And you will wage God's battle against cowardice and taking yourself in hand. So here, <coughs> excuse me, William Hendrickson points out that he believes it's the Holy Spirit that Timothy is told he has, which is not the spirit of fear. Mark Lloyd-Jones has a book called Spiritual Depression. And in that book, he has a chapter, I think it's called The Fear of the Future. And in that chapter, he deals with this text of Scripture. It's, it's a good chapter to read. I would recommend it to you. But in that chapter, he says, Now the thing to do, Paul says to Timothy, is to remind yourself that we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit and to realize that because of this, our whole outlook on life and the future must therefore be essentially different. We must think on, our, we must think on suffering in a new way. The way in which we face it all is by reminding ourselves that the Holy Spirit is in us. So I believe Paul has in mind here the one neglected person of the Trinity, that being the Holy Spirit, and recognize, Timothy, you have the gift of God's Spirit dwelling within you. And it's not a spirit of fear or timidity. Now that's another term that we need to consider for a moment. The term that's used here by the Apostle Paul, the, the exact word is only used here in the New Testament. It's the idea of being a coward or being shamed. It is a fear that comes when one considers what might he lose? What might this cost? How much pain is involved? This is a fear that would bring you to the point of lacking confidence even in the Word of God. It is a fear that can lead you to mistrust or unbelief and doubt. And Paul tells Timothy, the spirit who dwells within you is not a spirit that produces those things. Fear and cowardice. Now why, why would Paul say these things to Timothy? Well, we gather from what we know about Timothy that he was a man who was naturally timid. 
Timothy is portrayed as one who lacks confidence and boldness and determination, even courage. Paul, Paul has to tell Timothy, Timothy, let no man despise thy youth. Paul expresses concerns about Timothy's frequent ailments and even his bad stomach. There in 1 Timothy 5. It's interesting that there in 1 Corinthians 14, the church in Corinth is said, is told, I'm sorry, the church in Corinth is told that if Timothy gets there, do not make him afraid. How would you like that letter to go before your arrival? Now, if Timothy arrives, don't, don't scare the guy. Right? He's a bit timid. Think about it. Timothy's watched Paul. He's watched Paul suffer. He, he's watched Paul thrown in prison. He, he, he's watched Paul carry the weight of watching over the church. That's a heavy weight. Someone, one must, someone told me years ago that pastor's age, I think he said, was it, I think he said seven years for every year they're in the ministry. Don't even try to add up how old I am now. It can be a heavy weight to carry. And Timothy's watched Paul as he's gone through all this. And he knows that his responsibility will be even greater once Paul is, is off the scene. And so Paul's counsel to him is this. You have a gift given to you. It's the Spirit, but I want you to know the Spirit is not a spirit of fear. The spirit which God has provided for you does not lead to such reaction. And so basically, Timothy, you're without excuse. Go boldly. Be a man resolute in the work that God has given you you to do. And that's true with every believer. When God gives us an imperative, something that we're to carry out, something that we're to do, be angry and sin not. How can I carry that out? Well, we've been given this gift called the Spirit helps us. And so here we see, first of all, the spirit or, or, or the gift not given. But then that leads us secondly to the gifts given. And here we read, God has given power, love, and discipline. The Spirit of God brings something that is very much in contrast 
with what he does not bring. He brings three very positive characters into the life of a believer. Notice them with me. First of all, power. Power. Now this does not, this does not refer to physical power. Coming to Christ does not make you a muscle man. Nor does it refer to what we might call miraculous power. The performance of miracles. The term that's used here denotes energy, great force. The term that is used here is where we get our word dynamic and dynamite. There was a TV character that used to say that, wasn't it? Dynamite. I don't, know who, I don't know why that just came to mind just saying that. I don't even remember who the guy was, but there was a guy that would say that. It, it, it carries the meaning of effective, productive energy. It brings about courage. It helps us to respond to our duty without retreat. The, the idea of power is that of being obedient even in the face of danger. Being obedient even when it's contrary to what my natural being would want to do. The, the, the Apostle Paul is thinking about Timothy's service. He, he's thinking about Timothy's witness. He, he's thinking about just Timothy's life and, and how he lives that life. There will be opposition. There will be temptation. There may be persecution. And the spirit given to us is the way in which we can face all those things. And Paul here is, is not praying for Timothy to be given such power. But his, his counsel is, Timothy, I want you to be aware that as a child of God, you have this power. You already possess that when you were united to Christ. So a man is, is, is given responsibility. I, I, a man is, as individuals, we, we have certain imperatives God gives to us in his word. You must die to self. And you know what? I know myself well enough. I, I know I'm selfish. How do I die to self? I can't do that by myself. And God says, here's my spirit. And by my spirit, you can have the wherewithal to die to self. There are sins that I'm attracted to. 
There, there are things that I understand can be pleasant for a season, and they're alluring me. Well, how do I stay away from those things? How do I know victory over those things? I know my own weakness. I'm a man with a feet of clay, and I know, left to myself, what I might do. How do I press on? And the answer is, you have the Spirit. There's where the power is found. It's not found in yourself. Notice verse 8. Paul's admonition, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to what? The power of God. How do we endure suffering? What if we become persecuted for righteousness' sake. How do we get through that? I've often said that I, I know myself well enough that if I, I fear that if persecution gets too heavy and too difficult, I might be a coward. And then I realize, you know what? I've got a gift. The Holy Spirit will give me what I need when I need it if those days come. I'll rely upon Him. In chapter 3 here, Paul writes concerning those who have fallen away. And he says of them, they hold to a form of godliness although they have what? Denied It's power. Paul tells Timothy that there is this inward courage that comes from the Spirit that we possess. Each believer has the Spirit dwelling within him to strengthen him in his pursuit of godliness, to live righteously, to to overcome temptation. Some Some are in the midst of going through the battle of real temptation. And our counsel to them is not, listen, brother, pull yourself up by the bootstraps and just grit your teeth and be determined not to fall into that temptation. That's wise counsel, isn't it? No, brother, you've got a helper. Look to Him. Look to Him. The Spirit of power. To live as you ought to live in this world. Sometimes I get men, women for that matter, who say to me, well, this temptation, I'm just too weak. I am too weak. And my answer is, yeah. Quite a counselor, right? Yeah, you are too weak. I agree with you. That's why if you're a professed believer, He's giving you the Spirit. 
And oftentimes, we fall into temptation because we fail to rely upon the gift that He's given to us in His Spirit. There's power. Secondly, there's love. Love comes from the gift of the Holy Spirit. Romans 5.5 The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. The love of God is poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Spirit of God that dwells within me is a spirit of love. In reading through Martin Lloyd's chapter on spiritual depression, on fear of the future, he was talking about, you know, why, why is it that we often go through depression? Why do we become depressed? You know why? Now think about it. Why, why do you become depressed? Because I don't get what I want. Because things aren't working out for me the way I thought they would work out. Because somebody mistreated me. Do you see a pattern here? It's all about me. It's all about what I'm going through. And what the Spirit of God does, it comes into our hearts and gives us a different direction so that we love God. We're, we're compelled by, God, by God's love. We love Him because He first loved us. I, I am loved by God. A, a God who rules and controls all things. So though something happens in my life that I may not like, my God has a reason and a purpose for it, and He loves me. And I can trust Him. The Spirit of God directs our love even towards others. It's the one imperative given to believers more than any other. Love one another. We're good at living, loving ourselves. Being concerned about us. But the Spirit of God working within us causes us to, to look in a different direction to God and to others. I mean, the Bible tells us, you know, things like love your enemies. Well, that's a natural thing to do, right? Here's someone that's opposed to me, dislikes me. My natural inclination is just to love on him. No, no, it's not. It's not. What changes that? It's the work of God's Spirit in my life. So, so that, that I love even the unlovely. It is only by God's grace through the work of His Spirit that, that I would ever, ever perform that which we read about in the Word of God concerning the Good Samaritan. 
What would, what would cause me to stop and, and to care for someone that isn't related to me, that, that maybe is, is, is a complete different political party than I am, and, and, and he may live on the other side of the track? What, what would cause me to stop and, and help that person? The Spirit of God can do that. We need to, to love out of a pure heart, and, and that comes only by the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. And then finally, there is discipline, is how the New American Standard translates it. Your Bible could say self-control. It is a term that is used in God's Word that is very difficult to translate. That's why it's translated so many different ways in our English Bibles. But the idea that it points to is that of sound judgment and self-control. Sound judgment and self-control. It brings me to, to think through things clearly. The Spirit of God comes and, and, and helps me to instruct me with regard to how God says I ought to live in, in every situation of my life. So, so the Spirit of God helps me to think correctly and, and helps me to respond correctly. When, when fear grips us, we, we tend to maybe just fly off the handle and, and, and say things that we ought not to say. We, we, we seem to lose control. And, and Paul's telling Timothy, Timothy, listen, you, you have the gift of the Spirit, and the, and the gift of the Spirit is one in which you, you, you're able to think clearly. You, you, you process things through the lens of God's Word, and then you respond accordingly. How, how often have we said something to somebody without really stopping and, and recognizing, Spirit of God, I need your help. And then about time the words get about right here, you realize, oh, they should have never gotten out. And you try to grab them, and nope, not going to happen. Or, or how often have you found yourself in a situation where you reacted in some way just because of the circumstances and failed to recognize your dependence upon God's Spirit to help you to react in a godly way? Why do we respond, perhaps even to our spouses, in a way that we shouldn't? Because even then we don't take time to recognize, I want to be careful. I want God glorified. I need help. Because naturally my response is not 
going to be pleasing. One of my sons was at a couple's retreat this last weekend, and he said it was a good retreat, but he said one of the things the speaker said that sort of caught us by surprise, it's a funny story, he said the speaker said, hey guys, what do you do when you know you have to be at church at a certain time, and therefore you tell everybody in the house, be in the car at 8.30, and you get in the car at 8.30 and you're sitting there by yourself. And so next week on Saturday night, you gather the family together and you say to all of them, okay, everybody in the car at 8.30 in the morning. And Sunday comes and everybody's running around. It's 8.30 and you run and get in the car and you look around and you're by yourself. And he said that, this is the story I got, he said, you know, you walk in and not even your wife is ready. And how do you respond to her? What, what can you do? I mean, she's been busy feeding the kids. She's been busy dressing the kids. She's been doing all these things. And you walk in the house at 8.30 and she's putting on her makeup. What do, you, what do you do? How do you respond? And then my son said, with a straight face, the guy said this. You look at her and say, honey, couldn't you put your makeup on in the car? And I thought, no, 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 no. That's not what you want to say. What you want to say is, honey, next week I'm going to help you get the kids dressed. Next week, let me make breakfast and you get the kids ready. I thought it was a, just a, an interesting story. I'm, I'm thinking, you know what, if I went into the house and told my wife, honey, why don't you put the makeup on in the car? we would probably be coming to church in separate cars. <laughs> How do I react? How do I respond in certain situations and circumstances that come into my life? And someone might say to me, Pastor, I wish I could respond better. I, I wish I could react to my wife in such a way that she knows I treasure her. I wish I could respond to my boss in a way that gives him the respect that he ought to have as my boss. I wish I would react to that guy that cut me off when I'm driving down the street and I'm in a hurry. And I ask each one of us, including myself, do we recognize we have a helper? And we need to be dependent upon Him? We have not the spirit of fear, but we have a spirit of power and of love and of discipline. He's there to help us problem is we neglect him. We give very little thought. Notice I said we, alright? So we give very little thought to this wonderful gift that God has given to us so that we can live godly in a world that is hostile to God.
so I can react properly in the midst of every circumstance. Do we know something of the Spirit's work in our lives? I believe, I believe the church could be radically changed if the people of God, including their pastor, would recognize more and more our dependence upon the Holy Spirit, who's a gift that God has given to us. I too often try to live the Christian life in my natural being. And it's why I fail far too often. Maybe you're here this morning and you say, I I don't know anything about the work of the Spirit. I I, I don't know anything about living outside of myself. I'm still living for self. I profess to be a Christian, but still it's all about me, my friend. Then, Then maybe your profession isn't genuine. Maybe that's the problem. For everyone in Christ Jesus has been given this marvelous, wonderful gift. And you know what we do with it? Put it on the shelf. And maybe admire it from a distance. Isn't that a wonderful gift God's given to us? You stay there. I'm going to go out and live my Christian life. And then we fail and we wonder why. And so from the aged Apostle Paul to the young Timothy comes this word of counsel. Realize you've not been given the spirit of fear. But you've been given the spirit of power, love, and the Holy Spirit. And the same is true with every one of us who profess faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we would confess that You've given us this wonderful gift. And we have often neglected Him. We, we, we were quick to confess that our God is sovereign, rules over all things, creator of all things, sustainer of all things. We, we are quick to confess that, that Jesus Christ is our Redeemer, our Savior. We're quick to confess that He gave His life a ransom for us. He became sin for us, the One who knew no sin. And yet, Father, we are too often quick to simply neglect the Helper that You've promised every believer. And sometimes we wonder why we make so little progress. We wonder why we often fall into sin
we wonder why, why is the, 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 the pull of temptation so great upon us? <coughs> and it's often because we simply neglected the helper that we so desperately need. And, and so even, even as a church, There, there, there could be changes coming and decisions that need to be made and we can often say this is a bit overwhelming and how will these things affect me and so forth and we even neglect the Spirit of God guiding and directing us in these things. Forgive us, we pray. Thank You for Your grace and Your mercy. Father, we pray that as the people of God, we would more and more recognize our dependence upon the Spirit working within us for us to live as we ought to live in a world that is so hostile towards the things of God. And so, Father, we pray that as we confess our sins, that we would then pursue that which is right and good in your sight. Help us, we pray. As we ask these things in Christ's name, Amen. In closing, take the Trinity Hymn Book, turning to 488. 488, lead on, O King Eternal. The day of March has come. And as the King leads us forth in this battle, may we recognize our need for His Spirit to go before us. 488. <clears throat>
So we are having lunch together, and in the following lunch, we will come and primarily gather around the Lord's table this afternoon. Lord Smith.